try that again. I got caught off guard. Good morning, NBC. <laughs> it's good to see all your smiling faces today. Uh, it must be that we've adjusted daylight savings time because uh, you hopefully you got enough sleep last night. Well, I'd like to start today with a little bit of interaction. Is that okay? Okay, well, you didn't hear me ask what, you, what I want you to do. Can everybody take out their wallets? All right, take out their wallets. How many of you have some cash on you today? Let me see those hands. All right, a few of you anyway. Well, if you take out your wallets, does anybody have any $1 bills? I got one here. Can you take out your $1 bills and just wave it around like this? That's right. If you're a little hot, you can wave your hands. Good, good. All right. Now, let's test and see if what that, that video said is true. On the back of it, does it say, in God we trust? Yes, it does. Indeed, indeed. All right. Anybody have any $5 bills? $5 bills. All right. Wave those around. Good, good. Let's check that again. In God we trust. Yes, in God. We, so we trust in the $5 bill too. How about the $10 bill? Wave that around. All right. In God we trust. We trust the $10 bill too. How about the 20? 20. I got a 20 here too, right? 20. That's right. Wave that 20. All right. In God we trust. In God we trust. Now, I don't have any $100 bills, so we're going to skip over that one. Um, all right, put your wallets away before somebody grabs it. That's right. <laughs> so here's what I want you to notice at the beginning of our message today. All of those bills say, in God we trust. But let me see if you're like me. Do you have a tendency to trust money more than God? <laughs> it's an honest question, and I'll just give you an honest answer. I wrestle with this. As my wife can attest to you, I feel much more secure when the bank account balance is bigger it brings security. And so I wrestle with this question, am I trusting God with my life or am I trusting the money that I have? And so I find it ironic that on the dollar bills it all says in God we trust because I don't think that's functionally true for many people. Now let me be clear about something up front before we begin here today. I am in no way suggesting that we should be irresponsible with our money. God calls us to be good stewards, and money is a good thing, a good gift that God gives to us. It just can't be a ruling thing in our life. And Jesus knows that about our hearts. He knows this about my heart, that deep down inside, he knows there is a proclivity to place our trust in money rather than him. In fact, you might not know this, but Jesus talks about money more than any other subject in the, well, more than many of his other favorite subjects in the Bible. He talks about money more than he talks about heaven, more than he talks about hell. Why? Because I think every one of us is secretly a treasure hunter. That more money is not simply about having a bigger bank account, it's about having the resources to engage the things that make us happy, the things that we treasure. Vacations, leisure activities, building projects, new cars, new gadgets. As it's been said, anything is possible with enough money, right? But can money buy happiness? You see, Jesus gets at this all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 6, he calls us out for the treasure hunters we are. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Wow. What treasure are we seeking? Now, back when I was in ninth grade, I remember my teacher did an experiment, and she asked us this. She said, if you just randomly got a million dollars today, how would you spend that money? 
And I remember in my mind spending that money a hundred different ways, most of it on earthly, temporal things. But Jesus says here, don't seek treasures on earth, seek treasures in heaven, because what you treasure is the thing that has captured your heart. Author Paul Tripp articulates this very clearly in his book, Sex and Money. Here is what he writes. He says, we all live if I only had blank lives. Whatever sits on the other side of your if only is what you truly treasure. Or put another way, the other side of your if only is your happily ever after. So what is your if only? What is the thing that you say, if I only had blank, maybe you're young and you want the latest technological gadget. Maybe you're a bit older and you'd like to be married. Uh, get a bigger house, have a more extravagant vacation. What is your if only? Because what you treasure is what has captured your heart. Now, let's just imagine over here that this throne is your heart. Who is actually ruling your heart? What is it that's sitting enthroned on your heart? Because there is something or someone that has captured the ruling position of where we are that is, is crowned king of your heart. And that thing is what you truly treasure. So the question is, who is it? Who is really sitting enthroned on our heart? What is it that we treasure? What has captured our heart? Because whoever or whatever rules our heart, we're a slave to them. And Jesus knows this, so he continues in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. We cannot serve God and money. No one can serve two masters. There can't be two kings enthroned on our hearts. See, Jesus goes to the place we wish he wouldn't. He says, it's either me or money. There can't be two kings. And with those words, Jesus sets up this wrestling match that's going to be the tension for our entire message today. Because on one side of the ring over here, with a crown of thorns and with nail-pierced hands and with scars on his back is King Jesus. Yes, that's right. He promises us eternal bliss in the new heavens and the new earth to have a, a room in his father's mansion. But on the other side of the ring, the darling heavyweight of Visa and MasterCard and American Express and, and, and Wells Fargo, and yeah, even the Federal Reserve, is King Money. And the heavyweight match between these two, the one who wins it, is who is going to be crowned king of our hearts. It's a tension, right? You feel, you're starting to feel it even now. That this is the example Jesus is setting up. And why does Jesus go for money? I mean, you're saying there's so many other things he could possibly bring up, right? But Jesus uses money because it practically shows where our allegiance is in this world. Because for many of us, our, our, our income chases our lifestyle. We can't get enough money for how we want to live. Our credit cards are maxed out. And we do that because even though we don't have enough money, we think we deserve that thing. That's going to make us happy. And that's when king money starts to rule our heart. Paul Tripp goes on and he says it this way. He says, we don't have a budget problem. We have a heart problem. We don't have a financial problem. We have a kingship problem. And if we don't deal with the kingship problem, we will never successfully deal with the spending and budget problems so many of us face. 
Who or what do you treasure? Because the answer to that question will reveal the true king of your heart. Now, our main passage today is Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22, and it's the story of the rich young ruler. And Jesus asks him the same question he asks you and I, what do you treasure? And the man's response to Jesus reveals his true problem, the kingship problem of his heart. Because when we confront King Jesus, like the rich young ruler, we discover three things. Three things that reveal where we place our trust. First, like him, we have a burning question. Second, we, have, we want a buried treasure. And thirdly, we are wanting to be part of an upside-down economy. So a burning question, a buried treasure, an upside-down economy. Before we look at this passage, would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. And Lord, we confess this is a hard subject. Father, money touches all areas of our lives. Um, and Father, I pray for grace, grace for the preacher, grace for those that are here today, Lord. I pray that our hearts will be soft to hear what you have to say to us through your word today, and that we would ultimately place our trust in you above all other things, Lord God. Father, people are coming in today from all different walks and places of life, Lord. I pray that you would, you would speak clearly to hearts, and that you would ultimately help us to leave this place changed, transformed, more committed, more, more, more loving, more, more treasuring you, Lord Jesus. We ask that in your precious name. Amen. Well, the story of the rich young ruler begins with a question in verse 16. It says, And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, that's an interesting way to begin our story, right? Because you say, Pastor Bob, I thought we were going to talk about money. What does that have to do with eternal life? We'll get back to the money piece in just a second. But before we get there, we have to set up the larger issue, the issue of salvation. Because you see, this man, like all of us, has a burning question, a question that all of us confront at some moment in our lives. He asks this, teacher, essentially, what must I do to be saved? Now, to order, in order to understand that question, we have to go back and understand a little bit about the cultural background. First, uh, you'll notice that I cited this man is the rich young ruler, but the Bible doesn't call him that. In fact, never calls him that. Uh, the description is a compilation of the descriptors used in the three synoptic gospels. It appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so each of these descriptors clue us in on the young man's background. First, he's, he's a young man, probably between the age of 20 and 40. Uh, secondly, he's called a ruler, which would indicate he's some kind of religious lay leader, maybe a Pharisee, uh, because he strictly obeys the law, we'll learn. And thirdly, uh, the second detail helps us understand that he is financially well off, because these religious leaders were part of a wealthier, more resourced class. But despite his wealth, he comes to Jesus and he asks that question, what do I have to do to be saved? Teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus offers him this response. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So you may already sense here that Jesus is about to do his Jesus thing. That, that he knows there's a question underneath the question this man is asking. And so he corrects him. He says, young man, um, I know you're asking me what good deed you need to do, but you can't be good enough. There's only one person who's good, Jesus says. Like a good rabbi, Jesus answers that question with a question. Why do you ask me about what is good? 
You see, the man was centering his worldview on his good works rather than on the goodness of God, who alone can grant eternal life. And the criterion for life is not in the works themselves, but in the only true good there is, the goodness of God. And so the bottom line here is this, until this man turns from self to God, unless he places his trust there, there is no hope. And so we start to see that Jesus is taking this man all the way back to themes he introduced in the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll remember, in that passage, Jesus taught us that righteousness is not outside in, Our works don't save us. It's when God changes our hearts that an earthquake occurs and we start to live inside out. But the young man misses the point and asks, well, which commandments he has to keep? He says this, and Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, what Jesus is doing here is giving us a representative list of commandments. In other words, he is saying that this man must keep the whole law, which, of course, Jesus has already emphasized that he can't do. That's why Jesus had to come and perfectly obey the law for us. Look at the man's response, verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. Really? I mean, I read that, my first thought is, is this guy delusional? I mean, there's like around 600 plus laws that are part of the Jewish canon. Does he really, does he really think he kept all of those laws perfectly? See, it's interesting to note that this is the first time the man is called young, because in our youth, we tend to overestimate ourselves. And so God is saying to this young man that he's boastful and all he think about, he's boastful about all he thinks he's accomplished. It is, of course, to illustrate that he missed the point of what Jesus was saying. It's not your works that save you, but God alone. Now, before we leave this point, let's acknowledge that that we have a lesson to learn here, too. Uh, Because when we ask the question, what must I do to be saved, our hearts are naturally drawn to our own efforts. That's the message of the world, right? Your good works will save you. Of course, what is viewed as good and morally right can change depending on cultural norms. And underneath all of that is our desire to be viewed as people who are good, as people who have it all together. Now, to the conviction of many people, this principle was illustrated this week when there was a breaking news story. And so you may have heard that federal investigators uncovered a college admissions bribery scandal involving some wealthy players in Hollywood. Sadly, it was discovered that actress Lori Laughlin, who famously played Aunt Becky on the 90s hit sitcom Full House, was indicted along with her designer husband who makes the Mosimo brand of clothes at Target, which I didn't even put those things together. I didn't know that was him. They were accused of paying $500,000 so their kids could get into USC, as well as faking photos of their kids being part of a rowing crew team so they could get falsely into the school through a coach's recommendation. Now, it was shocking to many that Aunt Becky might be going to jail. But I think she'll have a chance to use Uncle Jesse's famous line to the judge, have mercy. (laughs) The point I'm making is this. What would possess a parent to do this? As far as we're told at this point, the kids didn't know. Why would Lori Laughlin do this? And I wonder if it had to do with looking good. That if your child attends a good school, you'll be considered a good parent, right? 
For many people, the story has been an example of how certain people use wealth to gain status over others. And when the rich young ruler asked the question, what good deeds must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, he's asking the same question that Lori Laughlin is functionally asking. What must I do to be saved? Only in her mind, the way to salvation is making sure her kids get into a good school, no matter the cost. Our desire to look good is not much different from the desire of the rich young ruler. There's a little bit of the rich young ruler in all of us. We all have that burning question, but our response often shows we're missing Jesus' point. Only God is good. And, that's, and, and it's only when we realize that that we will find our second point, a buried treasure. A buried treasure. I said at the beginning here we're all treasure hunters. However, the treasure we're hunting, whether it's admission to an elite college, whether it's an iPhone XR or status recognition at work, those treasures mask the real treasure. And to truly find that treasure, we have to dig deeper into our hearts. That's what the young man is about to discover. And before Jesus takes him there, the young man asks a follow-up question, the second half of verse 20. He says this, what do I still lack? What do I still lack, Jesus? I mean... I mean, he looks at Jesus and says, wait, hold on a second. Uh, Jesus, you said I needed to obey all the commandments, and I already told you I did all that. I mean, you listed all the commandments. I followed them. What do I still need? I don't get it, Jesus. Now, I'm not sure if this is right or wrong, but I have to admit that when I, I, I see these scenes, I find them really humorous, and I really wonder if Jesus does too. Uh, because over and over again in Matthew's gospel and in other gospels, Jesus is he's talking to the Pharisees or he's talking to his, his disciples, and he's always trying to make this point that people don't seem to get, at first anyway. And here again, Jesus is leading this young man to a deeper point. Jesus is, is trying to take him below the surface to his true heart motivations. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now see, I told you we'd get back to money. But Jesus had to set this man up first. See, Jesus knew exactly what was going on in this man's heart, but, but he had to get him to a place where he could hear this message. He set him up. And he sets us up, too, because he knows exactly what's going on in our hearts, friends. Has Jesus ever set you up? Like something was going on in your life and you wondered why? Uh, maybe you made a terrible mistake or, or your job started to seem unbearable or there was family strife. Uh, but God was speaking to you and, and, and you wouldn't be able to hear his voice unless you walked through this hardship. He set you up. So he could expose what was truly king of your heart, who you were truly trusting. And that's exactly what he's doing to the rich young ruler here. So in one verse, Jesus does several things. First, he's using it to call back again to the Sermon on the Mount. Because when he says you must be perfect, Jesus is referencing Matthew 5.48 when he said, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Of course, in that context, he's talking about obeying the law, that you have to be perfect um, if you want salvation, but he uses the same language here. But secondly, the question was, how can this young man be perfect? He says, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor. What? I mean, that's so radical. But again, remember what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. He always took the various requirements of the law and he made them harder. 
He said, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't lust after, after anybody. He says, you heard it said, you, you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, if you're angry at somebody, it's like you've done that. See, Jesus takes those, those, those laws and makes it harder. What is he doing? He's going for a heart, and he's doing the same thing with the rich young ruler here. Jesus says to this young man, young man, you think you're invincible. You think you know everything. You think you're hot stuff. You think you've kept so much of the law, but your heart is far from me. Your heart is ruled by king money. And when Jesus uses that language of treasure in verse 21, he's calling us back to Matthew 6 where he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And this young man's heart is not ruled by King Jesus, it is ruled by King Money. And so you see, do you feel this tension? That like the rich young ruler, our hearts are in a constant tug of war between King Jesus and King Money. Remember, Jesus is using money because it shows, it shows practically where our allegiance lies, and he's applying it to the young man right here, because each of our hearts is in a tug of war. Now, I asked Pastor Dave to help me with this this, this morning, and um, because I'm preaching, I told him I'm going to be on the side of King Jesus, uh, so you can, uh, you can be on the side of King Money today. We'll, we'll reverse the roles in the future at some point, um, but here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the tension, right? That, that, that our allegiance is shown in how we spend our money, and so when you say, man, I want to be a, a greater follower of Jesus... That, that may mean I need to be more generous, more generous than I've ever been. And so uh, we, we start to think, wait, wait, what does that mean? What does that practically mean? Well, let me, let's give a couple examples with our money. See, see maybe, maybe that means that we need to give half of our sacrifices uh, to St. Arbucks, right? And, and, and spend less on coffee. But, but King Money starts to pull and says, you need that cup. You need it. You need it. One more shot. But King Jesus pulls back and says, no, follow me. <laughs> and we know King Jesus would, would, would go to Dunkin' Donuts anyway. <clears throat> <clears throat> maybe, maybe that means that you, hold on, King Money. Maybe that means, <laughs> maybe that means that we need to buy, buy a car that we can actually afford rather than one that we think is going to make us look good. But King Money pulls at us and says, no, no, you need to look good. It needs to be this and that. But <laughs> you're really getting into it this hour. <laughs> but King Jesus pulls at us and says, imagine how generous you could be if you didn't have a car payment. Maybe that means that we would buy a house that's a little smaller than we need so that our mortgage payment is, is a little bit less so we have more to give away and be generous. But, of course, King Money pulls and says, you need more space. You need it. That's right. That's right. But King Jesus pulls back and says, imagine how much you will be blessed if you follow me. Do you feel this tension, friends? Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Just so you know, that went a lot better than the first hour. <laughs> See, Jesus says to us, just like the rich young ruler, I want your heart. I want, your tre I want to be your treasure. I don't want to be fighting another king for the ruling position in your life. 
And so Jesus says to the rich young man, if you want to find the true, the lasting, the the most satisfying buried treasure, you have to generously give away your earthly treasure to those in need. But sadly, the true king of the rich young man's heart is revealed in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He went away sorrowful. Now that's such a sad verse to me. But it's also incredibly convicting. Because there's a little bit of the rich young ruler in all of our hearts. You see, I want to be clear about one thing in this passage and what it's not teaching. Jesus is not saying here that money is bad. The truth is is being echoed in Paul's letter to Timothy when he says this, the love of money is the root of all evil. And so the question I have to ask myself is this, do I love money more than I love Jesus? Now there's another point I want to make really briefly here about this, this section because some of us are starting to think in our minds right now, well I give money to the church, I give money to, to organizations that help the poor, I am good, check. Pastor Bob, there's a lot of people sitting around me who need to hear this message, but it's not me. Well, if that's your mindset today, I'd like to give you a little bit of a challenge. Because the rich young man in this passage is likely giving money to the temple. He's doing almsgiving is what it's called. And back in Matthew chapter 6, again, Jesus calls out people who are doing this um, and calls them hypocrites because they're doing it to make themselves look good. But later in chapter 6, that's when Jesus talks about the treasures of our heart. And so the implication for the Matthew 19 passage is this. It is possible to give your offering and still be in love with money, to still be controlled by king money. See, Jesus says, are you willing to give all for me? Are you willing to be more generous, especially to the poor? It is clear that this young man loved his money more than he loved Jesus. Now let's make this a little practical. How do we kick king money off of the throne? And the answer is one word, generosity. Become more generous. That no matter how much money you're giving to the church, to outside organizations, to those in need, the question for all of us should always be, how can I be more generous? That is the way that we kill King Money and his rule and grip on our heart. Now, money has deep spiritual implications, and and I want to recognize that money can be a really sensitive subject to talk about uh, in church, but I hope that what you recognize today is, is this, that God isn't after your money. God is rich beyond you could possibly imagine. He doesn't need your money. No, God is after our hearts. And money is an indicator of where our hearts value. Remember, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so it's the reason that Jesus talks so much about it. Now, my seminary professor, Craig Blomberg, wrote a book entitled, Neither Poverty Nor Riches, A Biblical Theology of Possessions. If you're looking for a comprehensive biblical approach to giving and possessions, this is really a great book to read. Um, Listen to what he says about spiritual maturity and money in this book. He says this. He says, it goes too far to say that one cannot be rich and be a disciple, but what never appears in the Gospels are well-to-do followers of Jesus who are not simultaneously generous in almsgiving and in divesting themselves of surplus wealth for the sake of those in need. Now again, I want to emphasize, money's not the problem. Love of money is. Hoarding money is the problem. If you have the ability here to make a lot of money, praise God. 
I mean, seriously, praise God. Not everybody has that gift, but the church needs people who can make money and who are generous with it. I've known many generous people in my life, people who love the Lord, and and they are spiritually mature because they recognize that their money is not their own. I want to be like those people. I mean, I I might not make as much as them, but the point is that I I want to be generous like them. And, And listen, I'll be honest. When I was growing up, I didn't know how money worked. I wasn't great with money. I bought the lies of King Money far too often. Before we got married, my wife and I took Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University class. And I learned the necessity of creating a budget, of getting out of debt, of building wealth, so you can be generous. In fact, my wife will tell you that she would go into a store and she would have those envelopes that he talks about. And she'd be pulling out money from the envelopes and people would look at her and go, Dave Ramsey, right? <laughs> and, then, and then sometimes they would say, yeah, me too. But he's had a great impact, but it, because his main message is this, manage your money well so you can be generous. You see, Jesus goes after our wealth because he knows it can become our identity. He knows we will succumb to the lies of king money, but if you want king Jesus to sit enthroned on your heart, be generous. How can I be more generous? Who can I help? Where can I give? Because ultimately, what Jesus is whispering to our hearts is this, trust me. Trust me. Let me be your king. And when you do, the world will be turned upside down, and that is point three. Generosity leads to an upside-down economy. Now, there's a rather well-known movie from 1987 called Wall Street. Um, the main character is a man named Gordon Gecko, who's played by Michael Douglas. Uh, they remade it in 2010. The movie portrayed the excessiveness of the time, which was encapsulated in Gecko's signature line, greed is good. For many people, this is their mantra. But in God's economy, it is turned upside down. See, the economy of the kingdom is this. Generosity is good. That is the upside-down nature of God's kingdom economy. It's not about us. It's all about God and his glory. And it, it is the example that Jesus modeled for us. In fact, King Jesus came from heaven to earth, left his place on high, became a human being, and the Apostle Paul writes this eloquently in the second letter of the Corinthians. He says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That though he was rich, he became poor. And Jesus didn't do this so he could be rewarded, but, but in obedience to the Father's plan and out of love for his people, Jesus Christ came to earth, became a human being, was humiliated and crucified, naked and bloody, and mocked on a cruel cross for our sake. Martin Luther famously called this the great exchange, that Jesus got all of our sin and we got all of the riches of his righteousness. Praise God. And by doing that, he gave us the model of generosity. He gave everything for us, and that's grace. And if we know that grace, it should change the way that we live and give. Because grace changed people are generous people. Grace changed people are generous people. Do you serve King Money or King Jesus? Because when you ask the question, how can I be saved, only Jesus can give the true answer to that. 
And so I pray that that tug of war in your heart would end and King Jesus would rule. And when that happens, we become more generous. And so before we conclude today, let me ask a question. Does your budget reflect a life changed by God's grace? See, the rich man left left sorrowful because he wasn't willing to give more. He wasn't willing to to give more because he didn't understand the grace of the gospel. And the question for us is, is how about us? If you want to be more generous, let let me offer just a couple principles and then close with a challenge. So principle number one, first, purchase items less often. Now, I wouldn't suggest you go and sell everything, as Jesus said to the rich man, but uh, maybe we can free up money to give more if we simply purchase items less often. Uh, Let me use cell phones as an example. The last iPhone that I had, I had for four years. It was like a dinosaur when I was done with it. But I kept it a long time because we wanted to free up money in our budget, in 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 our bill. Now, maybe it's not your phone, but... Maybe you eat out less often, or you buy an older car, or you get less expensive clothes, or you buy clothes less often. The key to being more generous is freeing up more money. Now I have more income to give to those in need and for kingdom purposes. But as you free up more money, second, pray about your giving. How often have we prayed about our giving? Do you pray and ask God to give you the courage to be more generous? Because if we prayed that prayer and asked God, how can we be more generous? How can we give? Where, where should I give? I bet God would lay things on our heart. Now, many of us in this room have been very, very, very generous to support the work of our church. And let me just say from both Pastor Dave and myself and our leadership team, thank you. Just, just thank you so much. Our vision as a church is expanding the table for the glory of God. And so as we're closing out our fiscal year, I would encourage you to go and pick up one of our annual reports in the back and just take a look at all the kingdom expansion that you helped make possible this year. Because in that report, you'll find uh, stories of hundreds of lives impacted by the gospel, whether it's kids at summer adventure or it's, or it's youth going on retreats or mission trips or, um, or the poor and needy being helped through organizations like Relief Bus and Market Street Mission and Feeding Hands or babies being saved through the ministry of First Choice. See, as a church, we model generosity and give a substantial amount of money outside these walls to support the ministries of compassion as well as missionaries who bring the gospel all around the globe to those who need to hear it. That's all possible because you and you and you and you gave generously. Amen. Now thirdly, as you give, examine your motives. Because sometimes we give for the wrong reasons thinking that we'll get rewarded or that we can exert power because of our gifts. In other words, we can give out of selfish motives rather than God-honoring ones. Now, in Matthew 19, immediately after this rich young ruler departs, Jesus turns and he speaks to his disciples, and they make the same mistake. See, Peter looks at Jesus and says essentially this, Lord, we gave up everything for you. What's in it for us? What's in it for me, Lord? And sometimes we give with that motive, what's in it for me? When in God's economy, we should give with the mindset of what's in it for others? See, Peter's statement exposes a wrong motive for giving. His giving was selfish. And he was interested in what he would get in return. Now, now Tim Cower illustrates this point in his book, Prodigal God. 
And this is what he says. He says, once upon a time, tell us the story. Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He was a gardener, so that's what he did. So he took it to his king and said, my lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. And I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you, O king. And the king was so touched, and he discerned the man's heart. So as uh, the gardener turned and went, the king said to him, wait, wait. You clearly are a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land next to yours. I want to give it freely to you as a gift so you can garden it all. And the gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But, but there was a nobleman there as well, and he overheard this. And he said, my, if that is what I would get for a carrot, what if I were to give something better? And so the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. And he bowed low before the king, and he said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will breed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you, and took the horse and merely dismissed him. And the nobleman was perplexed. So the king said, Let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. So when we give, are we like the gardener or like the nobleman? So the principle is examine your motives. But finally, take a risk. We'll talk, when we talk about increasing our giving, it can be really scary. You say, I, I have a student loans or I'm in debt. Well, I'm not suggesting again that you shouldn't be wise. But I am suggesting that your giving should maybe hurt a little bit. And that looks differently for different people, but statistics tell us the average Christian only gives about 2 to 3% a year. And I wonder if we can do better. And so I would challenge us to take a risk. Because think of all the kingdom work we can support. Now, I mentioned at the beginning, my wife and I often have the conversation about trusting God with our money. She's more trusting than I, I just got to be honest. Um, but I have to tell you, I have been blown away, just blown away by how God has provided in our lives. That every time that God provides a way, I never thought he would. It's like he's saying to me, Bob, trust me. Trust me. Let me be on the throne of your heart, not king money. Trust me. And I wonder if God is saying the same thing to us today. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me that I will provide for you. Trust me, I want your heart. That's what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler. And so I'd like to offer a challenge for all of us today. The challenge to trust King Jesus with our heart and kick King Money off the throne. And the challenge would be this, that for the next month... Could we, could we tithe? Could we try giving 10% of our income up, up from now until Easter for a month and see what God does in your heart? God doesn't need your money, but he wants your heart. See what God does in your heart. See, there, there's three different kinds of people in here today. Some of us may not give at all or we give sporadically. Some of us in here give regularly, but we don't, we don't quite give 10%. And some of us in here may give 10% regularly, but we could give more if we're honest. And so I want to challenge you to pray. Just pray. Pray and see what God does about that 10% number. And as you do, let, let me close with a story. 
Because I mentioned previously that my seminary professor, Craig Blomberg, wrote a book called Neither Poverty Nor Riches, and at the end of the book, he really transparently shares uh, some of his family's practices when it comes to giving. <clears throat> he writes that early in his life, he was challenged by two different pastors who were each able to give 25% of their income away. This was not mentioned in any kind of arrogant way, just simply to, to encourage them that it can be done. And so he took this to heart, and he said, my wife and I began to tithe, which was based on our really modest income as a graduate student, uh, but we increased that percentage over the years as God has increased our annual provisions. This meant they chose to live on a relatively modest income, even in their affluent area of Denver, where they lived. <clears throat> and at the publishing of this book, the Blombergs had given over 30% of their income away for five straight years. Now again, I don't share that story to boast about Craig Blomberg, although he was really smart and I was really privileged to sit under him, um, but simply to encourage us that it can be done. I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. They have one more song for us in response. And as they do, I just want to encourage you, friends, King Jesus doesn't want our money. He wants our hearts. He knows that how we spend money shows where our treasure is, and he wants to be our treasure. And when we find him, we find grace, and grace-changed people are generous people. Let me pray for us.